Trevor and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 155. This time you're hanging out with King Buzzo of the legendary Melvins, Fantomas, and more. He's here with Trevor Dunn, bass player, composer, and songwriter from Mr. Bungle. Also Fantomas, Trevor Dunn's trio Convulsant, Tomahawk, the list goes on. We are talking horror movies, music, their new album they've done together, King Buzzo with Trevor Dunn, Gift of Sacrifice, available everywhere now. Let's get into it, shall we? This is Buzz Osborne. And this is Trevor Dunn. And you're getting creepy with the Boo Crew. They came to terrorize the wisest of the wise. You have to survive before you can do anything. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Here we go. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two of the world's most influential, prolific, and daring musicians and songwriters creating. They're almost startling imaginations and drive to experiment and do things differently, independently of each other even, has left a lasting impression in music history as they continue to push that envelope and evolve to this very day. First off, as a founding member of the legendary Melvins, a band formed in 1983 with almost a cult-like, mystical status, whose pioneering sounds literally created the sea change in modern rock, giving a sonic roadmap to bands like Nirvana, Soundgarden, Faith No More, Foo Fighters, Tool, and more. Their continually evolving DNA is a part of every rock band making music today. With the Melvins still going strong, he went on to be an integral part of other bands and projects, including Mike Patton's Billboard charting Phantomas, Venomous Concept, and more. Also here with us, a bass player and composer whose band Mr. Bungle that he started in high school in Northern California formed a wholly inventive concoction of genre mashing composition and play that pushed the limits of production and performance and a showcase to truly unorthodox musicianship. It was and still is nothing like anyone has ever done before. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone playing music today that isn't obsessed by what this guy continues to do. Every time he enters the studio is another opportunity he uses to shift reality, to challenge and inspire. As having been a member of countless projects with John Zorn, like Moonchild and Cobra, with Fantomas, Tomahawk, his own trio Convulsant, and joining the Melvins Light incarnation in 2006. King Buzzo's new album is called Gift of Sacrifice. It's out on Ipecac Records here to talk with us about it. It's our esteemed honor to welcome Buzz Osborne and Mr. Trevor Dunn. Yeah! Yeah! yeah. I just have one question first. Was that off the top of your head right there? I memorized it last night. <laughs> wow. Whatever you're on, I want some. <laughs> is that a heavy dose of focusing? Yeah, right? Focusing. Yeah, focus. I got that reference. <laughs> As a huge fan of both of yours, one doesn't have to look deep into both of your massive bodies of work to find parallels to the horror and sci-fi film genre and also straight up references. Are you guys fans of the genre and what's your first film you remember seeing that left an impact on you? I'm a big movie fan in general. Certainly like, uh, were you saying horror movies? Or, yeah, or- horror yeah. movies in particular. What's the first horror movie experience you remember? I saw probably um, 
Planet of the Apes, which is kind of a horror movie. I'd say it's more sci-fi. And then the other one uh, with also with Charlton Heston, or as we like to call him, Moses. <laughs> uh, the Omega Man. The Omega Man is one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites. And then later, I really like Planet of the Vampires, all kinds of movies like that, you know? All the hammer horror. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm similar. I'm, you know, definitely into film, you know, probably all, I mean, I don't know, as much as music and reading, you know, literature or whatever, but it's, you know, one of the things I enjoy quite a bit. In terms of horror films, man, I'm trying to remember. I, I do remember when my older brother got to watch The Exorcist and I, I wasn't allowed to because I was too young. And then I remember, I remember, you know, kind of sneaking out in the other room and seeing shit that was, you know, I didn't even know what was going on. And then I remember asking him later, I was like, why is it so bad? He said, well, there's, you know, there's really bad words in it. And I said, you mean worse than the F word? And he said, yeah, worse than the F word. And I had, I had, it was like, my just blew my mind. Like there's words worse than the F word. <laughs> Turns out, no. <laughs> I, like the, I like the fact that your parents wouldn't let you watch the movie until you were the same age as Linda Blair was in the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not until you're 12. I'm guessing that uh, The Exorcist is probably up there, but I'm curious. What were some of the horror titles that uh, you guys found uh, disturbing? Oh, well, The Exorcist is pretty disturbing. I doubt they'd get that movie made exactly like that now. Yeah. The yeah. 70s, 70s were a strange time. I mean, it was uh, it's almost like they were freer then to do what they wanted than they are at this point. Oh, totally. Totally. You know? Seems like. I mean, if you tried, brought that premise in to a studio now and said, this is what we want to do. I doubt you could get it made. I just doubt it. If you showed them exactly, you know, shot by shot, how they did that movie, I don't think. Yeah. Maybe I could be wrong, but not with that kind of intensity that, that didn't make it look. Usually when you try to do something like that, in most horror movies, it just ends up looking ridiculous. You know, it's like nobody believes it. It's obviously campy and fun, whatever, even no matter how crazy, like Evil Dead. As much as I love Evil Dead, nobody takes that seriously. It's not really scary. You know what I mean? It's fun. It's fun to watch all that stuff happen. Whereas The Exorcist, fun isn't a word that really comes up. So it's movie making on a whole nother level. So and the 70s were a weird time. And, and that movie made hundreds of millions of dollars. People were ready to see stuff like that. They were ready to deal with that. And in a way that I don't think people understand now, people can handle a lot of stuff. Not everybody, but in general, we're all used to handling all kinds of crazy stuff every single day of our lives, whether it's death or whatever it is, we're, we're dealing with it one way or another. And movies are fake. They're not real. And people need to understand that. Video games and movies are not real. People forget. They forget. You know? yeah. It's not yeah. going to influence you to do anything other than to have fun. Now, there might be crazy people out there that do, do insane stuff, but there's always been crazy people out there doing stuff and it wouldn't matter. You can't blame it on movies. I wish we could. I right. wish there was some simple answer <laughs> like that. You shut these off and everything's fine. You know? Yeah. yeah. That's, just, that's just, just absurd. That's kindergarten shit. We I, can handle crazy movies. I can handle it. I'll be <laughs> all right. You know? <laughs> man, I just, I just recently saw uh, Carrie for, again for the, I mean, I hadn't seen it in years. Man, that's an amazing. It's a yeah. movie. It's, it's super subtle until the very end, and then it just gets bonkers, you know. But man, Sissy Spacek's amazing in it. But that, you know, I remember seeing that when I was a kid, and it freaking me out. No, I never went to. I never went to high school proms. But if they could have promised me that, I don't. <laughs> <win>. <laughs> right. 
I'd have been everyone. Remember in the 70s, I mean, news reports about people passing out from the exorcist and being so affected by it. But I don't I can't think of a movie, a horror movie today that would have that same effect. A couple of years ago, that movie Hereditary, Hereditary came out and it had it was it was super uh, it was promoted very heavily as being so disturbing that people were fainting and running out of the theater. And I thought, OK, this is great. I totally bought into it. And went and saw it by myself at like 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, I can't wait to have my pants scared off me. <laughs> and I was I was actually pretty disappointed. So it was okay. Has there been any movies recently that have had an effect, like newer movies that you guys get, oh shit, wow. I'm still thinking about that. 1917. That was the one. Standing. I really loved it. I saw it like three times in the theater, maybe four, you know. I thought that was really good. I thought the, the, just the emotional impact it had on me watching those people go through all that, I thought was unbelievable. And the way they did it was really inventive and really cool. I loved how, how thought out it was. And I really got into the characters. The actors were so good in that. Everybody in that movie was really good. That's the most impressive thing I saw certainly in the last couple of years, I would say. For me, it was The Lighthouse. Oh, yeah. oh I love The Lighthouse. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. I haven't seen... Uh, 1917 yet but um you guys yeah. liked it yeah oh 1917 yeah. was awesome we loved the lighthouse as yeah. well robert eggers other movie the witch was really good that's a really good one the witch is great especially yeah. the ending <laughs> that's the coolest part when they snatch the baby they snatch the baby and i go oh they're gonna eat it <laughs> they're gonna eat it this is good i'm in i'm in i'm in for a fun time Buzz, would you say there's much of a horror or cinematic influence going back to just to the music of the Melvins first before we talk about the new album? I mean, there's been album titles. There's been uh, you guys covered the theme of uh, The Shining on, on one of your albums as well. Has there been an overlaying theme that you draw from? Do you find from horror? Yeah, I mean, one of our very first T-shirts was uh, Christopher Lee, you know, on the, was on the, I, I've been a big fan of that stuff forever and I appreciate anyone else who is as well, especially people like people shit talk Tim Burton, but you can tell what his influences are. If you just know what they are, his influences are really good. You know, he is, he is really good. Like people shit talk sleepy hollow. I can't figure it out. I love that movie. I thought that movie was really cool. It looked every single thing in it looked like the way I wanted it to look, you know, from the way the rooms are painted to the outdoor scenes, all of it. And that's all straight from hammer horror stuff. Or from like Black Sunday, you know, and stuff like that. It's all right out of that. You can tell how much of a fan he was. And I love it when people do that kind of stuff. I love it. We put Christopher Lee on the front of our t-shirts in the 80s because we were such big fans of that stuff. And we just loved that imagery. And I just, since the time I was a little kid, I've never, never gotten over that. We've had, you know, uh, uh, Barbara Steele from Black Sunday right on t-shirts, you know, stuff like that. Once in a while you have people, you know, they just think, oh, it's, look, it's just some far out looking chick. You know, no, you know. You don't say anything, but when it's really nice when people come up and know what it is, yeah, what it is, you know, you I always get really excited. So it's always been a huge part of what we were doing, especially me and Dale. And uh, my wife's really into all that stuff too. We are big monstrous movie fans. Movies are a big part of my life. I mean, I, I live my life with uh, in, inside and outside of movies all the time. I take movies with me when I travel. I watch movies like I fall asleep with movies, watching a movie every single night on the road, you know, whatever it is, whether it's a shining or it's Lawrence of Arabia, whatever it is, I can't get around it. I think movies are almost the ultimate art form to me. You have music, you have storyline, you have visuals, all of it. And if it's done correctly, 
there's almost nothing that will give you that kind of feeling. Trevor, I want to go to you. I mean, there's definitely elements of of the music of horror embedded, especially into that first Mr. Bungle album, like in Travolta, for instance, or the end of egg, just to name a few things. And the experience of listening to that album gives the listener a feeling that you're listening to something you aren't supposed to listen to, just like a great horror film. Do you remember what, if any films, horror or sci-fi that you were listening to during that era of the creation of that first album? Well, you know, uh, blue velvet came out the year that me and Pat graduated from high school and that that movie had a, a big influence on us. And during the recording of that first Bungle record, we kind of we had that movie on loop in the lounge. It was just always on. And and there's I mean, I'm sure you've noticed there's a lot of samples of Frank Booth on that record. So and I would definitely call that a horror film, you know. Um, so that was a big one. Um, Henry Porter of a serial killer was had come out around that same time, which that was that movie I found really disturbing. I saw it in the theater. And that that was kind of the first like hyper real violence I think that I'd seen in 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 modern cinema, you know. And it was it was so like unglorified uh, and just ugly and horrible, you know, just horrible. That that it was. I remember that being a disturbing film experience for me. I remember um, the cook, the thief, the wife, and his lover was a big one that came out around the same time, you know. I mean, that was yeah that. I, Calling that a horror movie is is borderline, but you know sure. anything unsettling or jarring to me counts as yeah. you know yeah. a horror cinematic I mean, experience. Cannibalism, so you know there there you go. It's all, <laughs> all you need. The, I mean, even the aesthetic for that first tour almost took on a really sinister vibe when you guys are all in the one piece suits and you're wearing a pinhead mask through most of that tour. Was right, there right. any conscious aesthetic to come across in a sinister or terrifying way, or did that just was that a byproduct of? It's it's something that we kind of um, before that tour we've been toying with and never really like sometimes we'd put on, you know, we were kind of into this idea of a circus or whatever or and also being anonymous, but we never really took it super seriously, I think, until that first tour. And actually, I would have to say that a big influence on on us for that was uh, we used to do these shows with this band called the Deli Creeps in San Francisco with Buckethead. Yeah. And Buckethead was a, I remember he, you know, he would, was in character for the whole show. That's what gave it impact. I'm like, man, that, that's just like disturbing to watch, you know, like that. There's no emotion. You can't tell what this guy's thinking. And I think after we played with them a few times, we, we decided to keep our masks on for the whole show. And then, then that, that tour happened. And the choice of masks was kind of random, you know, like, Trey ended up with Madonna and Patton was doing bondage mass. You know, it was all, I don't, you know, I don't know why I ended up with pinhead. I wasn't, I mean, I like Hellraiser, but it just kind of happened, you know? And so um, all that seeped in there somehow. So you guys are both a part of the Phantomas project and director's cut being probably one of the most well-loved albums from that project i would say critically acclaimed where you guys kind of deconstructed and reinvented music from not only horror but thriller cinema and crime films from henry mancini to bernard herman what were the challenges for you two in particular of decoding that music and do you have any favorite moments in particular from that project well those phantomas is all Patton's project so you know he would come up with the arrangements and then we'd have to learn them so that was the that was the challenge really he would make these demos with drum machines and, you know, some guitar and stuff. And, and, um, that were pretty, pretty accurate to what they ended up being just, you know, 
ended up being a lot tighter and he just does it all by ear. So um, we would have to decipher these cassette tapes, which was also a big challenge. <laughs> a lot of his demos sounded like he'd recorded them right next to a garbage. Disposal. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's guitar. I'm not sure what that is. I'll have to ask Trevor if that's guitar or bass or what the fuck. <laughs> a lot of you would have no idea until you got to the first rehearsal. And what I learned pretty fast is no matter how much time I spent on it, I was playing it wrong. <laughs> no matter what so not a lot of point in, in in wasting that much time on it it's kind of productive in a lot of ways because you get then you get this thing drilled into your head that's not exactly right sometimes it's hard to break out of a little yeah. bit yeah there were times with some of those demos where there'd be this blast and it just sounded to me it just sounded like a cluster you know like okay we just play whatever there and then we'd get in this in the rehearsal and pat and be like, no, you're playing this note and you're playing that note. I'm like, Oh shit. Okay. Got to relearn it. <laughs> oh my God. I had no idea. that <laughs> Those guys are pretty good players, you know? And so they're on it and they can figure it out pretty fast. And once it's recorded, it's almost like you just forget it till the next time you actually have to play it. Yeah. I so can't gain all that information for too long. You know, I couldn't play it now. No fucking way. Yeah, I wouldn't know where to start. I'd definitely have to spend a week relearning it oh at least. Oh my God. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the new album here. And uh, what can you, so we can tell me about that studio, the sound of, of Siren Studios and the kind of palette that Toshi Kasai had at his fingertips for you guys. And it, to make this very, like, it's a very unconventionally sounding acoustic record. So what did you guys have in the toolbox? Well, originally I wasn't going to involve Trevor on it. And so I wrote a bunch of the songs and, my idea was that I was going to do modular synth along with uh, acoustic guitar and, that, and vocals. And that was going to be the record. I hadn't heard anybody that had done anything quite like that before. So I wanted to mix those two. I didn't want to do anything that was like my first album, first solo album I did, um, which is all acoustic guitar and vocals. That's it. No other instrumentation. At that point, I really wanted to do something that was completely stripped down and just kind of make myself do it. And then I did a huge world tour all by myself playing guitar and singing and, um, did that. So I didn't really want to go down that road that much with this, but what I did want to do was when the record came out, I wanted to tour with Trevor. So I asked him if he wanted to come out and do an opening slot doing stand-up bass, solo stand-up bass. And then, then maybe we could play a couple songs together. And if we're going to do that, we might as well maybe think about, we can get together and we can maybe record a few songs together and maybe put out like a tour EP that we could sell on the tour. And Trevor seemed like he was, down for that idea and so he came out this is well way over a year ago you know when we did this and um, he came out for a few days and i go well why don't you try playing on one of these songs that i already have and we could put that on the ep it'll be a little different than what it is on the record and um and uh uh we'll you know we can sell it once he put it on there i changed my mind completely and said oh my god this sounds so cool let's have you play on another song and i was playing on another song i'm putting these on my fucking album you know, that's what I do. So that was kind of how that all happened. It was mistaken. You know, I'm not dumb enough to have a really good idea in front of me. I'm not dumb enough to just, no, no, I don't want to do that because my original idea was this. No, I am completely an accidentalist when it comes to that. I'm completely wanting to shift gears and realize that something else is better than what I had really thought. And so that's why it's a King Buzzo with Trevor Dunn record and not a King Buzzo and Trevor Dunn, you know what I mean? Or together. The only reason. But I would really like to do one like that with him. And since this COVID thing has happened and all our tuning plans and everything went down the, down the drain, we were thinking, um, I'm thinking, and I asked him about it, we would like to do another album, but have it be a 
true collaboration. You know, like he writes songs, I write songs, we, we write some songs together, much more so than what we did. And I think that would be really good. And then tour it. And when all this stuff is finally blown over, it would be nice. But that, that was kind of how that happened. And then the studio is a studio that we put together with Toshi Gasai, who's been recording us since the early 90s. And we put that together with him. It's in LA and uh, not far from the Burbank airport, actually. And it's just a warehouse that we kind of just built out. Actually, it, it, and we rehearse there. We also can record there. He records some other bands there too sometimes. And then uh, what's your, what would be your impression of the studio? Because to me, it's not like a normal studio. No, it's, not, it's, it's essentially a rehearsal studio. I mean, when you walk in, it's one room, you know, it's like a room where the band rehearses. And then there's a small control room where, where Toshi is. And um, when I got there, you know, I showed up and Toshi set up a couple mics and, you know, we got a sound and I listened to the stuff and it was, I mean, it's, it's pretty bare bones, you know, there's no like lounge or, I mean, there is a, there is a little kitchen, you know, where you can make coffee and stuff, but it's essentially kind of almost like a, not that far from like a home studio, you know? Yeah. It's nothing, it's but, not fancy at all. No, but he knows, Toshi really knows what he's doing. Yeah. And, uh, trust him. You know, yeah. How to do it. And, and totally. if you just leave guys to, to their, let them do their job. You're a lot better off. Yeah. And I, I have to say with upright bass, I'm not always like, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can mic it, different kinds of mics, you know, and like, I totally trust Tosh. And it's, it always, when I heard this record after not hearing it for a while, I was, I was actually impressed with the sound of the upright. I'm like, wow, it sounds yeah. really good. Yeah, it's <laughs> sounds all, it's good. Truly acoustic. It's, it's yeah. all like acoustic guitars. Mic the mic bass. There's no amps or anything like that. We didn't run anything through an amp to boost up the sound or anything. That's just Trevor sawing away with a bow or hitting it with his fingers. That's it. What about all those like otherworldly modular synth sounds and the sci-fi esque sounds and all that stuff? Is that coming from gear that Toshi has collected over the years, or is that plugins, or what? What is that? Uh, it's, it's a modular synth stuff that I have and stuff that me and Toshi have. A lot of the stuff is uh, uh, super primitive. Like, um, we would, for years and years, me and him have done stuff, most of it ends up on records in one form or another, where we would take the most primitive way you could make something sound like a synthesizer, like a distortion box with a cable sticking out and you're just hitting the, the, hitting the, uh, the, uh, um, the plug, or any number of things like that, from super cheap stylophones and stuff like that, ran through stuff and try to make it sound like it's something else. And no one's ever figured out that it's like dime store crap. <laughs> done so well that it, you know you, you don't really figure that out that's how it always is um, um with people that have imagination or a, a vision of what what can work instead of going i have to go to this kind of studio i have to do this i mean we pride ourselves on being able to get good results because you trust the uh the environment you're in and you trust the people that are there and your ability to be able to envision and execute without having a bunch of shit standing in your way. Like, I'm not sure if I can do it. Oh my God, maybe this won't work. No, of course it will work. It will work perfectly. You just <laughs> have to have, you have to have the, uh, the vision and the uh, ability to execute it that way. And it'll, 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 it'll come out good. You'd be surprised at how good you can make stuff sound. And a lot of it, we call it the sound of siren studios because where we used to have it, it was downtown and that's pretty much all we ever heard. and then uh we never wanted to tell anybody that we recorded it ourselves in like a you know 
a warehouse place because then people will go, well, they should go to a real studio. We go, well, let's just call it a studio. And guess what? No one ever noticed. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like it was recorded in a rehearsal place. No, no one ever, it never came up. But if we had told them it was, they would have nothing but complaints about it. <laughs> I am not one that does well with complaining. I do well with complaining or constructive criticism. <laughs> just the unsolicited constructive criticism. <laughs> Don't do well with it. The Boo Crew will be right back. Planet of the Vampires. Harboring a form of life worse than death. Planet of the Bloodless. Creatures who take men's bodies but attack like vampires. I'll tell you this, if there are any intelligent creatures on this planet, they're our enemies. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. Like you're saying, having the uh, ability to be able to work almost at the speed of thought on ideas and, and shifting to wherever you want the music to go at the time. Would you say that this collection of songs represents anything in particular, Buzz, a, a certain point in your life? Is there a central theme that connects all the music on this together at all? I knew I wanted the songs to be longer. And that was about it. As far as my vision for that go- goes, I, I worked really hard. Me and Char- or Tosh both worked really hard on the on the modular synth, the synthesizer stuff, we worked really hard on what we wanted to do with that. And that stuff took actually a lot longer to put together than the actual album did, because it always does. But a lot of it was recorded, you know, I recorded some of those songs four plus years ago. Then they just sat, you know, and whenever I come up with something, I'd record. And, and then now people are uh, super interested in buying vinyl now for some reason, which is fine with me. I mean, I really don't care how people listen to music, but I always like CDs better because number one, Albums went from being 30 to 35 minutes to being 55 minutes or, you know, at least 45. And now it's just not possible unless you make a double album. I don't think people are really thinking that through with that sort of thing. And uh, so, you know, albums are somewhere between 30 and 38 minutes now. So once I had that much stuff, then I was ready to do an album pretty much. And bringing Trevor in really brought this to the next level. I, you know, I mean, I've often said my best thing I got out of my association with Phantomos is my continued relationship with Trevor, you know, and, and, and so many different things that we've done. So I really appreciate that. And thanks a lot, Trevor. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, what is it, if you could put your finger on it, what is it that you love about what Trevor does just in general? Well, Trevor's a really good musician in a way that I'm not, I'm not trained at all. I don't read music. I don't have, any idea where the count is and how stuff like that works. Dale, the drummer in the mountains oftentimes laughs. He's like, where are you hearing the one? And I go, it's right there. And he goes, that is not the one. <laughs> that is your one. <laughs> and, you know, so Trevor has a, a ability to hear things along those lines, which kind of brings in another element that's not there when I'm playing by myself, which is kind of cool. And there's really not much I can throw at him that he can't do. You know, nothing. I mean, he's a super good musician. If I tell him I want you to do, you know, crazy uh, noises that sound like an oil tanker hitting a coil, coral reef with the bass, he can do it. 
you know, <laughs> or if I want you to do some super snooty sounding jazz thing, no problem. You can do that. You know, just do some version of it. So I've always really appreciated that. I don't have that ability. I'm self-taught. I don't do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, like studio gigs or, or, you know, um, I can't, I couldn't go and sight read a gig the way he could and stuff like that. And he does much more along the stuff along those lines, whereas I'm more writing stuff on my own and just recording it because I can't write it down. But I think that uh, conversely, like what helps me with certain musicians buzz in particular is like, you know, approaching things from a, from, from his angle, you know, which is like, it's one thing for me to show up at a studio and some, somebody gives me some sheet music and I learn it and, you know, I rehearse it all week. And then I, you know, do that very formal thing, but to, but to go into his, to think about music with, you know, to, to have to like question where the downbeat is or to think about, Oh, maybe I'm hearing it in a different way than he is. I, all this kind of stuff is, is uh, it's a good, I think it's good. It's basically it's like thinking outside of the box for me, you know, you know, in ways that I wouldn't have thought because maybe I was too restricted by the, the studies of it or the academia or something like that, you know? Um, so it's a good, it's a good, um, more visceral way to approach it. So I think it's a good combination actually to be able to, for me to be able to do both, you know? Yeah. I'm not dumb enough to let that go either. You know, I'm not dumb enough to, to miss that. I want that, especially when I'm working with Trevor, I want it. And when I'm working with Stephen McDonald, I don't worry. I, I work with Stephen McDonald. It's different. It's a different kind of thing. But with Trevor, I have a, you know, it's like almost like you shift gears into, okay, now we can do this kind of thing. You know, it's really cool. Really cool. Track three, I'm glad I could help out. Featuring Trevor is the only song on the, on the album recorded in one take. What uh, was it about that live performance session of that song that made you realize you had it the very first time? We didn't uh, make any mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear me at the very end. Of, <laughs> we made, we, we wrote that one there. You know, I had, I had a guitar riff, you know, and then I, the guitar I did that's on there was, that was a scratch guitar, something for Trevor to play along with. And then I was like, it sounds great. I'll just leave it. You know? No I reason to read it. A lot of times what would happen is, um, Buzz would just be like, like I'd record a song and they'd be like, okay, try, try this next one and be like, okay. I'd, so I'd hear it for the first time and I'd, I'd sit there and I'd listen to it a few, I'd have Tosh play it back. And each time he'd play it back, I'd try and figure out what to do with it, you know? And then I don't know, after 20 minutes or something, I'd be like, okay, I think I got something. Let's roll with it, you know? And, and, and that's how it would happen, you know? And sometimes it was easier than others. And then there were, there were some songs, right? Overdub too, which should be, it's pretty obvious there's like a but it's almost like a string section or something but yeah i don't know i'm not sure for some reason that one it just like i i knew what to do and i kind of practiced it as i was coming up with it i was kind of like writing it and rehearsing it at the same time you know bass part you know and one of the things I'm really in love with on the album is the a very unpredictable and unexpected way that both the bass and guitar play off each other and the kind of counterpoint and then you'll meet in the middle and then go off and other things you can kind of follow one instrument or the other and you're each doing incredibly different and complex things separate and then together it's just really really interesting it's creating these really unique grooves the only time i've ever heard anything nearly close is there was a band in the 80s that no one has heard about called stump oh my god i love stump oh you do oh cool yeah Nice. But they, nice. they touched on that interplay kind of between bass and guitar and their brief existence. And you guys explore that like so fluidly on, on this album. Was that 
were a lot of these grooves built that way with the two of you together or just reacting to guitar parts that Buzz had brought in or did he bring in bass parts as well? I think it was more of like his, his stuff was recorded. So I kind of, which was cool. Cause I had like a, this solid thing to go off and I could kind of do anything, you know, so, yeah. because I mean, I, I, sometimes I wouldn't even think about what meter it was in. I would just like play. And if it didn't line up perfectly, I would just keep playing. I just keep my loop going. And so that's what creates his counterpoint, I think to, you know, to a degree. And, and if it didn't work, then, you know, I, Toshi, would, uh, he, that's the other thing about Toshi is he's really good at be like, you know, that sounds weird. Or, you know, you're out of tune there or something. Try it again. Or, you know, he's again. that stuff. And, and, um, and then, so maybe I do another take and I tried a little bit different, but I didn't, I think one thing that really helped is I didn't overthink it too much. I would, I didn't write any of it down. Like if we ever play the stuff live, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and like, <laughs> <what the hell laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I don't yeah. expect it to be the same. I wouldn't want it to be the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, the case with us always if you guys get an opportunity which i hope you do soon to play live is there a song that is your favorite that you would like to play live i don't know maybe delayed 30 delayed 30 there's one that i i know what it is but i i don't i still don't know the names of songs yet i don't have uh until i have like a hard copy of the record i i won't i think they're available on amazon (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a copy of the album with like full liner notes or anything in there but the you were alluding to some of the string sounds are all the string sounds we hearing are they all you trevor or was there string players that were brought in to do that no it's all bass it's all there's a couple sections where i you know recorded bait like a bass line and then a next another section will come up by and i thought well maybe there's been enough of that sound i'm gonna do something high so i would just bow up really high and then overdub you know similar things or you know kind of create this pad up in the like in the cello range the instrument wow no i totally thought it was i thought there was like a string section and those elements give uh when you combine that intimacy with those sounds of orchestration you end up with that really cinematic you're in that cinematic space where the music starts to become super visual. Was that part of your vision buzz to, to make that this kind of experience? Well, as as soon as I heard this, cause I'd lived with those songs for a long time as usual, you know, no one lives with music longer than the people that are making it and you're hearing it and hearing it one way. And once I heard it, I heard it for so long, the way that it was, once I heard it with the bass on it, I was like, Oh my God, that's what we got to do. That, that, that sounds so cool. You know, I have to, I have to, I have to let, make sure that that happens. You got to play on more of the record. And so that, that's what we did. <laughs> so as soon as I heard it, I knew, you know, that this is really what I wanted to do. This is really, really, really cool. But, you know, if you can imagine it without the bass, that's what, that was what it was originally going to be, you know? So, I mean, it was all, he added to it and he added another element that wouldn't have been there that uh, uh, I wasn't about to let slip through because I hadn't, I hadn't originally planned on that being the idea. Fuck that. You know, if it's better, it's better. I'm I'm all about that. I don't care, you know, that I came up with some of the original spark for the idea. That's all great. What makes this thing great is the addition of everybody, you know, that's what makes the whole thing good. Each person individually then comes together and makes a whole that's better than, than, you know, the sum of its parts, as they say, you know, I, I didn't, uh, when I recorded it, basically I was just hearing what I did and when, what, and Buzz's tracks. And then, you know, he hadn't even put any, I don't think he'd, he'd put any vocals down yet. I think I had vocals on one song. Yeah. 
and then when Buzz sent me the finished copy with all the the analog synth stuff and all the production that him, him and Toshi did, the vocals and everything, I was like, holy crap, what the heck, man, this is insane. <laughs> you know, yeah. I had the same reaction. Like, I've never heard a record like this, you know, it's yeah. not... It, it it definitely was built in layers and um yeah it's i'm super proud of it oh my god I'm, I'm so happy with it usually with records like that like i can i can enjoy them uh, up until about the time they come out you know like we, were, we mastered this record on december 19th so i've been living with the finished product since you know for the better part of a year and by the time it comes out you know you walk away from it and you moved on to something else you're like right, you know right. goes world and it has a life of its own it's really none of your business anymore you know you liked it you walk away from it and and you let people have it and do what they want with it and think think what they want but honestly i don't revisit it a whole lot after that after the six months of listening to it right <laughs> moved on i'm already i'm already working on new new stuff other 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 music so i'm in that mode now you know that record's done that record is supposed to come out in may I was supposed to be on tour from May until the end of November, all gone, all just shit cans completely. And so, you know, there'll be no tour or anything like that. Nothing, nothing we can do about that. Probably won't be able to get together to do any kind of podcast or anything like, you know, like where we play together. That's just not going to happen. It's just, this just not going to happen. So I wish you could. That's why Trevor should live in the West coast, but no, <laughs> <laughs> Snooty New York City. <laughs> so, I mean, is that is that the plan? Do you want? I mean, during this time, have you been obviously? I mean, think thinking about oh, well, to do this stuff live. Here's my vision for how we'll do it. Here's who you know, Trevor will come out, we'll enlist Toshi or whoever to take the stage with us. Have you been thinking about that? And is now really all that stuff out the window, or is there a backup plan that once this thing kicks, that we will be able to see this on the road? Well, the backup plan was we were going to cancel the first. First, we didn't cancel anything until the middle of April. See what happens. And then we only canceled part of it. And then when it became obvious, then we canceled the rest of it. So it's just like, you know, any ideas of plans that I had, I was just like, there's no point in building the bridge in the river Kwai, you know, you know, just to watch the whole thing go down the shitter. Fuck that. I'm just, just can't be bothered. I'm just not going to do it. I mean, even in a lot of ways, writing a bunch of new material right now is just kind of dumb it just doesn't make sense i mean i'm finishing stuff that i already had done had already worked on i mean i don't what am i going to do get these guys to get together to rehearse a bunch and then what <laughs> right right <laughs> <laughs> you know, for what we're we're we're, we're in, a, in a covid prison yeah and i would say live music and stuff like that will be the very last thing that comes back you know whatever what the definition of what the future is is totally anybody's guess you know what are you guys doing just to stay sane as you know as musicians and artists through this we're working on my hair (laughs) (laughs) a lot of physical activity i'm a big fan of exercising and stuff like that i I have been for a long time i golf all the time you know but i would normally when i'm home Uh, i'm big on uh i love playing sports generally my problem is i hate people that play sports you know that makes it a little harder. I read a lot. You know, I hate people to play sports, but I love playing sports. I hear you. Why I'm such a big golf fan because I don't need anybody else to do it. That's true, so right? You don't talk when you're out there. I see the people at the tee box. I see them at the green. Other than that, I'm on my own. <laughs> you, can't, 
basketball, you know, <laughs> there's no way. So I love that. I love being outside. Uh, uh, musicians are people with the great indoors. And so it's nice to have an activity like that where you're outdoors and especially in Southern California, you guys know it's beautiful here. Most of the time uh, I can go pretty much 52 day- weeks a year when I'm home, uh, when I'm on the road, I don't do it. We do normally do 80 to 120 shows a year. That's so, right. I mean, this is, yeah, this is a really weird thing for you. Melvin's tour so much. One of the hardest touring bands in music, man. We always have. I was always considered a big part of what we did. And I wanted a connection with that. And I also wanted to make sure that our records and our live shows were a different, different animal. Um, I didn't want people to come to the shows and hear the record. You know, it's like we might play the whole record, but it ain't going to be like the record. You know, I always liked that when bands did that. I never envisioned our fans as stupid as some of them might be that not that any of them were stupid enough to think when they were listening to an album at home, that they were at a live show. (laughs) 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 So I always tried to give them a different experience with the record than they would get at a live show, you know, and stuff like that. Sort of like seeing a, a, uh, the difference between seeing a, a play and a movie, you know, like you don't expect the same things from a play or from a, a play that you would expect from a movie. You understand the limitations of how that goes. And that's what makes it, both of them cool. So I also, you know, read, read all the time. Uh, I am writing some stuff. I'm working. Uh, I love taking pictures. I'm working on a, a photography book. We have a lot of stuff that's not finished. We're, we're finishing a Melvin's 1983 album, which is the original drummer playing with Dale playing bass. We did an album like that a few years ago, five or six years ago, and we're going to do working on another album, uh, doing that, that, that that's almost done. I'd say it's 80% finished. And then uh, um, uh, other than that, we have a few other little recording projects we're doing. We have a big thing planned for the Melvins. I'm ho- hoping, I'm not going exa- to say exactly what it is, but by the time it's done, I think it's going to be four full length, four albums worth of something. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. That's the plan. So how about you, Trevor? How have you been staying sane? Uh, well, I've been pr- practicing upright a bit and just trying to keep my chops in shape, you know, just doing like basic exercises and stuff, which I can do all day. It's, it's actually kind of meditative and, you know, I can do it by myself. I can do it here at home. You know, no one bothers me. Um, I've been trying to write some music doing a bunch of reading, listening to records, you know, I mean, being isolated, being like the lockdown isolation thing is really hasn't affected me that much because other, other than playing gigs and making a living, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if we didn't have to make livings, this would be yeah. actually pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's much different than I do at home anyway. You know, not a whole lot different musicians. I'm married. Me and my wife have been married 27 years. You know, and so we love hanging out with each other. It's, it's always fun. That's a good thing. But, uh, uh, you know, if you don't have your own shit wired, it, it not, no relationship with somebody else is going to work out. <laughs> you, you take care yeah. of yourself. And I'm a yeah. big, big fan of uh, independence. It's, I find it to be very attractive you know, that people are independent. And one of the things that attracted me so much to her was that she didn't need me you know, <laughs> at all. Right. <laughs> to be extremely attractive. You know, I, I'm not, I, I don't want, I don't want to have to deal with a bunch of daddy issues. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, the latest we've heard from the Mr. B camp is that you guys went and re-recorded your first demo from 1986, the raging wrath of the Easter bunny. We've heard some 
singles from it so far and the full length is set to come out October 30th. Yeah, we luckily got those shows in February and, and recorded. We went to the studio right after those shows we did uh, in California and, and re-recorded the record. Yeah. And um, it's been mixed and mastered. I'll just say that. Going back to her for a quick second here, a scene as there are so many uh, horror movies being released these days from all levels from like studio productions to independent do-it-yourself releases, is there any interest between you guys to collaborate and score a horror movie? We would do it. Um, I'm not good at networking, that kind of stuff. You know, if somebody wanted to, wanted us to do it, I'm sure we could. I, I don't, don't know how well I would do at taking a lot of orders from somebody. I probably wouldn't be good at that. The film industry is, I mean, I'm barely, I, I do a little scoring for independent stuff once in a while. I don't, I'm not really in that world so much. I love doing it. I, I mean, I love soundtrack music in general. You know, I, I listen to those records like I listen to any other record, you know. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I know people who are in that world of of taking orders from film directors and, and uh, the huge uh, flock of people that are involved in that, you know, and it kind of sounds like a nightmare, actually, you know. Yeah. It's, I think it's really hard to, the one thing I like doing is I work with people I know, like independent filmmakers and I, you know, I'll take some suggestions and stuff, but I really like to, you know, it's a really good way for me to sit home alone and work on the stuff by myself and figure out what I can do as a musician to enhance the film or, or whatever. Um, But when it gets, when it comes to like a big production with a million people telling you different things, it can, you know, I, it sounds like it might not be that fun. <laughs> right. Too many cooks in no. the kitchen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we've done, we've done a few things like that. And uh, the last thing we did was relatively recently. It was for some cartoon or something like that. And we need this little like one minute thing and we record it and do it. And, and they're just like, no, that's not right. You know, it's like, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. You know, I've done my part. You don't like it. You know, okay, fine. So uh, Crover just did it on his own. I go, I can't do it. I can't stand this. I can't stand it. And then you have people come. We're looking for stuff for a movie. Okay, we want you to write something. It's like, look, dude, we have written and recorded five hundred fucking songs. You can't find one of them. (laughs) Are you kidding me? You're not trying very hard, are you? And then I have to. Then I have to deal with people like this. You know. So you want me to rehash some crap that I've already done 30 fucking years ago because you can't be bothered to go look? Fuck, fuck off. I can't do it. I just can't do it. You can't, you know, on all the different kinds of things we've done. It's like nothing will work in your special movie. (laughs) (laughs) And then what you do come up with isn't good enough. You got to go back and do it again. It's like, come on. I was thinking you should make it sound more like the soundtrack from Bullet. (laughs) You put a bullet in your fucking head. <laughs> Love that. John Zorn has done some um, film work stuff, and he he kind of got to a similar point where he got tired of directors telling him what to do and cutting up his meat. You know, he'd give him something, and then they'd cut it all up and, you know, basically ruin the music. So he got to a point where he just started being like, okay, here's the deal. I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you, you know, 60 minutes of music. You can do whatever you want with it in the film. And that's it. And then he would put out the music as a record. And so he's got a whole series on his label of, you know, film works. So it's, it's like an independent thing. And then these, these people put, they use the, the songs however they want in their film. So. Um, yeah, he doesn't care then. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so far, we haven't had that offer. So. Right. <laughs> but what we did, what we did, though, we, we were always just super interested in soundtrack stuff. We did a record a couple few years ago called uh, Walk With Love and Death, which one record was a record, like a music record. The other record was a soundtrack for a movie that didn't exist the way that we wanted to do a soundtrack. And then we made the movie <laughs> after that. Walk With Love and Death. So the soundtrack, we, we pretended like it was a real movie and put it out. Oh, this is a movie for the soundtrack by this guy in, in, named Jesse Nyman from Atlanta. And then put it out and, and, and no one really questioned that there wasn't a movie. And then me and him got together and we made the movie. That's brilliant. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> nice, nice. Oh, that was funny. That, that, that soundtrack, though, we were like, oh, if I was going to do a soundtrack, I'd do all these different kinds of things and have all these ambient recordings. And that's all on that record. And people, well, it just sounds like noise. We told you it was a fucking soundtrack. It's not a real, you know, it's not a Melvin's record. It's a soundtrack record. And besides that, we gave you a Melvin's record with it. You know, why are you bitching? You've got one record and a soundtrack record. I think that's pretty cool, but apparently it's not good enough for you. So whatever. I personally, I would be stoked if a band did that. Like, oh my God, this is really great. And that's how we operate. We do things like we would like if we were fans of the band, what would we appreciate if a band did? You know, oh, we would like it if they did. And that's how we've always operated. You know, if I was like working with Trevor, I'd go, I want to work with Trevor and I want to work with him in a way that I would like someone to work with me. You know, let him have freedom to do what he wants to let him do. I would really like to be in that position to have it happen. It just doesn't ever hardly ever happen. You know, you try to do, you know, a, I've tried to figure out what I like what I would like to do and then try to have that atmosphere in what I'm doing, you know, with the people that I'm working with. Cause I feel very, very blessed in that I've got to work with people like Trevor and Dale and Stephen McDonald and Pincus and all these different musicians. I mean, I feel like the, the luckiest boy in the world, you know, to have that kind of thing be the case. I've had such a great experience with that. And I listen back to that music. I'm very, very proud of it. And I couldn't be happier to have that be the case. You know, very well said, man. Well, you guys, yeah, thank you yeah. so much for spending time with yes. us today. We so appreciate it, man. Thank you guys. And I'm glad you guys have, have such an interest in movies. It's, it's, it's pretty much my whole life. That's so you know? awesome. That's nice, so awesome. Nice. Well, when, this, when this shit's over with, we'll have to uh, hook up. You have to come see the studio. We'll do something in here. I would love to. Yeah. As soon as, oh, as, soon, as soon as the plague is yeah, over. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> Whenever. I, I, I don't know. It keeps getting extended. I'll see you on the golf course and you make sure you keep your distance. That was the Boot Crew Podcast episode. Episode 155. Special thanks to our guests, King Buzzo and Trevor Dunn. Get the album Gift of Sacrifice, King Buzzo with Trevor Dunn, available everywhere now. If you like this episode, check out episode 82 with Mike Patton. Music for this one from King Buzzo with Trevor Dunn. Production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. 
the bloody disgusting podcast network home of the boo crew for horror-centric interviews scp archives weekly full cast storytelling horror queers genre commentary from an lgtbq perspective and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts